Let's bow our heads and our hearts together, and we'll begin our time in prayer. Our Holy Father, we thank you uh, for this opportunity just to pause and to speak to you because we love you, and thank you that you love us unconditionally with an everlasting love that never changes. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And though it feels like the world may be forever changing, we thank you that you are the solid rock on which we have planted our faith and given our lives to. We are grateful for the relationship that you initiated, that you have allowed us to cry out in our hearts, Abba, Father. And so, Lord, much like the disciples who said, Lord, teach us to pray, uh, that's our earnest desire that we might fellowship with you more closely and see you at work in our hearts and lives. And so we commit this time to you now and ask your blessing over it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, as you can see on the handout, it gets a little bit longer every week. We covered quite a bit last week, uh, about eight pages, and we'll pick up where we left off. But if you are joining us for the first time, we have several objectives as spelled out here in the opening page to understand the nature of prayer, to ascertain if God answers the prayer of the unbeliever, to state four reasons why we ought to pray, uh, to discern the different types of prayer that are outlined for us in Scripture and the various hindrances to prayer that God highlights for us. We're going to look at also the very mechanics of prayer. What, what does it look like? I mean, what kinds of things should we actually say? And sometimes you will hear a Christian pray, and they mean well, but they're not praying biblically. And then we're going to um, memorize some verses of Scripture as we do with each of these handouts. We started last time by asking and answering the question there on the opening page, what is prayer? And we defined it simply as speaking with God. It's a dialogue between two people who love each other. And God has loved us with an everlasting love, from everlasting to everlasting. And Jesus in his high priestly prayer reminds us that God the Father loves us as much as he loves God the Son. Then point B, we saw that prayer is the channel for appropriating God's resources, that we might walk with the Lord and please him. And so the writer of the Hebrews reminds us that we have a great high priest uh, who can sympathize and understand our weaknesses, our infirmities. Uh, some translations render the Greek New Testament. And we saw that on three levels that Christ is able to relate to our physical infirmities, our intellectual infirmities, and our moral infirmities. Uh, he was tempted, this text of Scripture says, in all things as we are, yet without sin. And while the various expressions of temptation have changed through the ages, the nature of temptation has been the same since the Garden of Eden. In fact, if you study the temptation in Genesis 3, you will find it's the same thing that Christ experienced in Matthew 4, that 1 John 2 highlights the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. So really, all temptation falls into that realm. Christ was impeccable. We affirm the impeccability of Christ. The temptations were shown not to see if he could sin, but to show that he could not sin. And some people would say, well, that doesn't mean he was really tempted. No, he experienced the full brunt of temptation. If you have a temptation scale on a 1 to 10, maybe at 3 you give in, or at 5 you give in. Christ went to the top of the scale and never gave in. So he can fully relate and understand. 
every test, every temptation that you or I experience. So with a sense of confidence, with boldness, because we have one, a mediator that we can go to. There is one mediator between God and man, not several. There's one God, and so there's one mediator. And he is the God-man. And so 1 Timothy 2.5 emphasizes his humanity, and that's important. Because as I point out on point 12, while not denying Christ's deity, Paul's affirmed it in 1 Timothy 1.2 in the opening verses, and that he associates the grace and mercy that the Father gives is equal to the grace and mercy that the Son gives. Why? Because they are equal. But while not denying his deity, he emphasizes his humanity. Because without taking humanity to himself, the Lord Jesus could not be a mediator. The nature of a mediator is that he must represent both sides equally. And in this case, he's God and man. And so our mediator is God and man forever. A question came into the Bible line last week and Someone said, I don't know if we answered it yet, Rick. I saw it come through, and we get emailed questions, and you're welcome to present your questions. They come in so fast and furious, we really can't answer them all as much as I would like to. I would literally spend all day behind my computer responding to emails. They come in by the dozens sometimes in a single day, either to my email or to search the scriptures or to the church and other vehicles. But we answer as many as we can. And so a gentleman wanted to know, does Christ still have a human body? And of course, the answer is yes. You see him in his human body, in his resurrected body, there in those 40 days as he walked on the earth. We sing at rich wounds yet visible above. You will see the nail scars of Christ. And then um, we saw that this raised an important question, and that is, if there's one mediator between God and man, does God answer the prayer of an unbeliever? And of course, we looked at not an idolater. You know, if you go to India, it's just like nothing you've ever seen before. I've been there just twice, but literally on every street corner, tied to vehicles, at every doorstep, there's some kind of deity, some kind of God that people are worshiping. They have an estimated 300 million gods that they worship. Now, God is bigger than the kind of family someone is raised in because his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature are clearly seen through what he has made so that men are without excuse. And many people recognize this. When I was there on one trip, we saw over 800 Hindus come to faith in Christ. Why? Because they recognized that the created thing is not the same as the creator to whom we are to worship. And so we saw not an idolater, but a person who was responding to, not suppressing general revelation. When you see an Indian or a Hindu worshiping some object or totem pole, that's not some kind, of, uh, some kind of religious piety that just needs to be perfected. That's rebellion. That's sheer rebellion against God. That's someone suppressing the truth. But we saw in Romans 10, excuse me, in Acts chapter 10, that Cornelius was not suppressing truth. 
He was responded to everything that he knew. He's described in Acts 10 there in your handout as a devout man and one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people. And then an angel of God appeared to him and he said, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now we do know that Cornelius was not a proselyte. You will see the term proselyte in the New Testament. Remember that great sermon that Jesus gave in Matthew 23 of all these woes, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. And one of the things he accused the scribes and Pharisees of was making proselytes and going to the nth degree to make it happen, but they didn't even apply the things that they asked these Gentile converts to do. He wasn't even a proselyte. He was just a full-fledged Gentile responding to everything we know. Was he saved? No. How do we know? Because when you read the commentary in Acts chapter 11, um, it says in verse 13, and he reported to us how he had seen the angel. Peter is recounting to the elders in Jerusalem and the leaders there. He reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house saying, send a job and have Simon who's called Peter brought here. And he will speak words to you by which you will be saved. Yet God answered his prayer. And obviously, among the kinds of things he was praying for was for wisdom and for salvation because he got a specific answer. And so God has many expressions of grace, what the Protestant reformers would often refer to as common grace. The common grace of God being that general expression of God's care that he shows to all of humanity. Then on number 27, we were leaving off on this page. We didn't quite finish the page. Uh, we note on number 27, we must never forget that God is not against people designed for them to go into judgment, but that God is for people, not wanting for any to be condemned, but to be saved. And Jesus plainly said that in John 3:17. We can see why God desired to answer Cornelius's prayer and that he was responding to God's gracious revelation shown to him because God's desire for him was that he was not that he perish, but that he be saved. So God can answer the prayer of a lost man if he so chooses, especially the lost individual responding to God's initiative. And again, the initiative always begins with God. You may not realize that because you were raised in a Christian home and you probably prayed for some of you while you were in your mother's womb. But the initiative was with God because by nature, none of us seek God, no, not one. And so often in response to a parent's prayer, even at a young age, a child will be responsive. But the initiative is always God's. And so Jesus said, no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. In addition, God does promise to, in every instance that he will answer the prayer of a lost man calling on him for his salvation, Romans 10. And that is far, as far as we got. And so Luke 23, 42 we find the thief on the cross who prayed, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And God instantly granted him the gift of salvation. And the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. And I know it's a parable, but Christ never tells a parable with error in it. So anything that you find in a parable, he only uses truth to teach truth. And that's important because there's a lot of applications you can make out of parables that aren't necessarily directed to the lesson itself, but to the truth that he's highlighting that applies in other realms of life. 
And so in the parable of the Pharisee and the publican, the tax collector simply prayed, God be merciful to me, the sinner. Literally, God be propitiated to me, the sinner. And Christ promised him the salvation, saying he went to his house justified or saved. With this said, while God can answer the prayer of a lost man, man, person, and while he promises to answer their call and faith to him for salvation, the rest of his promises concerning prayer are for the saved. If you've received Christ as Lord, it's your privilege to learn and to claim his prayer promises. As you address God as your Father, which again is why God promises, is, which is why God's promises on prayer belong first and foremost to us, that is, to those who believe. If you're taking this course, and we have people who take it on occasion who have never received Christ, if you will turn to God from your sin and trust Christ's death and resurrection for your forgiveness, then you will gain the privileges of prayer with God. Now, that brings us to a new category. Those who pray must pray in the name of Jesus. So let's think our way through that. Since Jesus is the only way to the Father, John 14, 6, a verse all of us should memorize. That makes him the one intercessor between God and man, 1 Timothy 2, 5, we read that, which is why in the upper room he promised all who believe in him this, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. That same night, they leave the upper room. They're on their way to Gethsemane. And in John 16, we read, Jesus says, In that day you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. So when we pray in Jesus' name, we are confessing that it is through the merits of the cross and through the righteousness given to us as a gift that we can approach God in prayer. Paul, in that great discourse in Philippians 3, highlights all the things that he could have bragged about, but he reminds us that he counts those as but lost, but dung, manua, is, to, is actually a Greek word. He said it a little more kindly. <laughs> Um, he, he counted it all but dumb. Why? That he might be found having a righteousness not of his own, but the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. And so we are acknowledging that when we pray in Jesus' name. We, we're admitting that we have no righteous standing on our own. So we're not more worthy to pray when we've been consistent or successful or We've been having our quiet time and coming to church. And I met a man recently, and he said to me, I said, I've seen you here a lot lately. You don't usually come. He said, I've got this big prayer request. He said, I figure I better start coming to church every week. I said, well, it's good that you obey, but coming to church every week doesn't achieve you a righteous status, Christian or unsaved person. Our righteousness is found in Christ, and we're confessing that when we pray in Jesus' name. When we pray in Jesus' name, we are confessing that we are coming in his righteousness, but also we are accessing Christ's power, for he has all authority in heaven and on earth. That's what he tells those 500 people that are on that hillside in one of the earlier appearances. This is one of five places, of course, the Great Commission is given. When Christ invites us to pray in my name, 
He is not giving us some magical form, formula, but rather an endorsement and a limitation. He's giving us an endorsement like a blank check or possibly like a friend who says to you, you may use my name. But in addition, the Lord is giving us a limitation and that our petition or praise should be in keeping with the character of God's name. It's not by accident that the very first entreaty in the Lord's prayer, some people like to call it the model prayer and the high priestly prayer of the Lord's prayer. That's just semantical, it's silly. But traditionally, we've referred to, you know, the Our Father who art in heaven is the Lord's Prayer, and that communicates. I think it's best to refer to it that. But in that first entreaty, I just say that because someone's going to come up to me after. Well, that's not the Lord's Prayer. Keep it, all right? Hallowed be your name. That's how it opens. Hallowed be your name. Because any request that does not glorify God's name should not be asked in Jesus' name. Simply said, praying in Jesus' name comes with parameters because to know his name means that we approach him in a way that would please him and honor him and glorify him because he's God. Whatever he said you ask in my name, that I will do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. So in other words, the whatever and the anything here in John 14, 13, and 14 is qualified by all that God has revealed in the Bible about prayer. As we will learn, God answers prayer so to honor his name, which is why it is essential that our prayer be in his will. And we'll speak a little bit later about 1 John 5, 14 and 15. Remember, prayer is a dialogue between two people who love each other such that when you love someone, you honor his or her name, right? So when you love someone, you would never use their name in an undignified manner. And so any request that does not glorify God's name should not be asked in his name. So we pray in Jesus' name. It's not just something we tack on at the end of a prayer. Those who pray must pray with a clean heart, with a clean heart. While sometimes Christians will sometimes speak of God not hearing the prayer of the lost, most of the passage is addressing unanswered prayer concerns not those who are lost, but those who are saved. In fact, the very passages that are typically quoted, here's a verse, God doesn't answer the prayer of the lost, has nothing to do with the lost. In fact, I can't find a verse in Scripture that says, God will not answer the prayer of the lost. I can find hundreds of verses in Scripture of promises that God has given to the saved. I can find a number of principles as why God doesn't answer the prayer of a saved person. In generally speaking, you can conclude that God generally does not, unless it's an expression of his common grace and in bringing someone to faith, like Cornelius, respond to the prayer of a lost. But we take these passages that deal with the saved and we dump them on the lost guy and we miss the critical application for our own lives. So the psalmist, Psalm 66, 18, we don't know the author of this psalm. More than likely, it's Davidic because of the ones that surround it. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Now, the psalmist did not say, if I sin, God does not hear. For the Bible teaches that we all stumble in many ways. But rather, the word regard is a Hebrew word that means to cling, to cherish, to harbor, to hold on to. If I, if I hold on to sin in my heart, God doesn't hear. The prophet Isaiah drives home the same truth. 
about God's people who had strayed from God's will to serve themselves. Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save. By the way, I think this is one of the reasons people take this verse and dump it on the lost man. Now, there's application to the lost man because the principle that sin separates the believer from God is also certainly applied to the unbeliever. But remember, the word save, especially in the Old Testament, is not always in reference to, um, to justification kind of salvation. And that becomes obvious in many passages. In fact, um, go to Isaiah for a second. And um, there's a text that I think most of us know. It's just back a few pages from where we were. Isaiah 52 in verse uh, 7. We've actually sung this song. Uh, It's put to music. How lovely on the mountains, Isaiah 52, 7, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. Now, you may know that verse, too, from the New Testament, because Paul quotes a portion of it in Romans chapter 10. So there in Isaiah 52, the word saved means saved, and that's how Paul applies it. Saved from the penalty of sin, what we might call justification. But like um, uh, the judges are raised up, and one guy by the name of Samson is raised up, and, and the Scripture says that God would raise him up to save them from the Philistines. Obviously, the word save, same Hebrew word, yasa, is not being used in reference to justification. So there are many expressions. You can be saved from sickness in the Bible, saved from your enemies, saved from premature death, saved from all kinds of problems, especially there in the Mosaic Covenant in Deuteronomy 28 to 30. So context is very important. And that's why I think someone can flippantly read this verse and think, oh, he's talking about salvation. No, he's talking about deliverance. In fact, some English texts don't say saved when it's the same word. They'll translate it deliverance. Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short here in our handout that it cannot save, nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. He's speaking to Israel, to God's people, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. The problem was not God, for his strength had not diminished because the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save or deliver us. Neither was the problem that God lacks knowledge of our needs. And certainly the problem was not that God is not concerned with our challenges. And so Isaiah speaks of his ear so dull that it cannot hear. He can hear, for he's omniscient, and he can act, for he's omnipotent. And so the problem is not with God's power, his knowledge, or his interest. The problem is with our iniquities, with broken fellowship. So we're we're talking about like a fundamental reason why people don't really see answered prayer, because their heart's really not clean. They're holding on to unconfessed, unrepented sin, and they just flippantly sometimes come into the presence of the Lord, and there's issues that have to be addressed. While sin in the life of a true believer cannot sever our eternal relationship with God, 
And it certainly cannot separate us from the presence of God because God's everywhere, right? That great Psalm, Psalm 139, where can I flee from your presence? If, if I go into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. And, you know, the darkness is like light. The, you know, you're, you're everywhere. Even before there's a word in my tongue, you know what I'm going to say. He's omnipresent. Sin clearly, however, does separate us from fellowship with God and the blessings that come with that fellowship such that God wants us to identify the iniquity within us before we bring our requests and petitions to him. Much like the prodigal son, that's a study in itself, who was still loved by his father. When we are in sin, much like the prodigal son, we are still loved by God, but we do not enjoy the benefits of his love. How easy it is for us to blame our problems on everything except our sin. But it's our iniquities and not God's lack of interest or power that will hinder our ability to see God respond and answer our prayers. So while the above verses are often quoted out of context as a basis for God not hearing the prayers of the lost, the context is in reference to believers who through broken fellowship have unanswered prayer. All right, let's go to the next point. Those who pray must pray with a forgiving spirit. When the disciples watched Jesus pray, one of them asked in the parallel account in Luke 11, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. And in his instruction to them, he reminded them that instrumental to effective prayer is to have a forgiving heart to those who wronged us. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Now, that's an interesting verse. He's not saying, I hope you realize, that we earn forgiveness through forgiving other people. And so the Scripture describes various levels of forgiveness. There is positional forgiveness, that happens by grace through faith when you call upon Christ. But then there's experiential or fellowship or what we might call family forgiveness that we covered in depth in the second handout. And that's really what Jesus is dealing here in, in the Mark in account or in the parallel text in Mark 6 as well. In the model prayer, the necessity of a forgiving heart is underscored when the Lord instructs us to pray and forgive us of our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. So there's this tension, and you see it all the way through Scripture, where on the one hand, you have something that's a mark that you're genuinely saved. On the other hand, it's a mark that you are walking with the Lord. For instance, a mark that you're genuinely saved is you'll love the brethren. By this, we know we've passed out of death into life. And so if you're with us in that first handout, it took five weeks to cover. We looked at 1 John 5 in its context. These things I've written to you, believe in the name of the Son of God, in order that you may know. What things has he written? And we went through five things that he highlighted in 1 John that are a mark that you can say you know you have eternal life. He's not writing to people who like, oh, you know, I'm doubting I'm saved. He's writing to people who have, among other things, because of false teachers who had entered into the church, it was a pre-Gnostic heresy, who had a false assurance. 
So he says, if these things are true of you, you can know that you have eternal life, that you have genuine belief for faith in Christ. So on the one hand, you know, loving God's people is one of those things. That's a mark of conversion. On the other hand, God teaches that a true believer can forsake his assembling together. On the one hand, a person who forgives, that's a mark that he's converted. In fact, let's look at a text. Go to Matthew chapter 18. I, I put it here in the handout. And if I were teaching the discovery class, we'd probably stop and pause here. And uh, we would look at this passage, Matthew chapter 18. It's a great chapter. It's just packed with truth. It begins with um, dealing with an issue of rank in the kingdom, so to speak. They're in debate over who's going to be the greatest. And he compares the kingdom of God to little children and then gives warning about people about people who will harm little children. And so when our so-called vice president-elect says he thinks it's fine if a transgender eight-year-old wants to do whatever he wants to do, that's evil. That's evil beyond evil. Jesus said that kind of hurt to a child is a tremendous heartbreak to God. He said it would be better for that person to have a millstone hung around their neck and drown in the sea. We need to pray for our leaders. We've got a lot of just not lost people, but people who are bent on evil in our nation right now. Then, of course, he, he, after he deals with stumbling block, he, he, he deals with the importance of a single person. He deals with, in light of that, church discipline. And then he comes to this subject of forgiveness, starting in verse 21 of Matthew chapter 18. Let's look at it. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. And I'm sure he thought that seven was a generous number because is the oral tradition which we have written. You can see how the Jews thought at that time. They said three times. After three, that was plenty. <laughs> um, so Peter was real generous, and he said up to 70 times. And of course, the Lord says, no, I do not say to you up to seven times, but to, up to 70 times seven. Uh, I, I couldn't keep track of 490 times if I forgave an individual. I'd lose count at some point. And that's his point. You just keep forgiving and forgiving and forgiving. And if you get, forgive a brother 490 times, I guarantee you're a forgiving person. It's a habit. But nor was he saying that we should be careless because he's just addressed the subject of church discipline in the prior paragraph. So then he goes on and he really describes the power of forgiveness. And he, and he does it through this uh, individual who goes through three stages of one kind or another. First, he's viewed as a debtor. Verse 23, for this reason, the kingdom of God may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. Now, this guy thinks that he can pull this off on his own. But as you look at the figures in the NASB, gives you some sense of the amount of 
debt and money that we're speaking of out in the margin. It's an impossible amount of debt, at least $10 million in modern-day money. Some would say $20 million. Whatever it is, it's big. And this guy somehow thinks that oh, he can do it. He's really filled with, with pride. It takes, in the first century, the average person 20 years to make one talent. His debt's much bigger. However, because he did prostate himself and he begged on behalf not only of himself but his wife and his children, the Lord of that slave, verse 27, felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. So he was a debtor, but then he's also a creditor. Look, starting now in verse 28. But the slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed. And of course, the application, my heavenly Father will do the same to you. If each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. So, he describes this unbeliever who has this massive debt. It's released. And then he goes home and his fellow servant has a teeny weeny little debt. And he's unwilling to release him. And that's a mark that he is unsaved. So on the one hand, and you'll see this in a number of passages, having a forgiving heart is a mark that you're converted. I spoke to Someone recently, when I was in New England, and we got into a discussion, I said, have you ever thought that maybe you, you're not saved? That you're in a prison of sorts? That you have this unforgiving spirit towards these people that you've described to me? You know, as a pastor, you become a counselor. You know, we're sitting around outside in a restaurant. Everything's outside just to get a little food to eat. Before you know it, is that your wife or do you just sleep with her? This is what the guy asked me. I said, she's my wife. Yes, she is. Oh, you've been married long? 40 years. 40 years? Goodness, what's the secret? Jesus Christ. And it opened up a conversation, and then it turns into a counseling appointment, as it often sometimes does. You know, and I tell people sometimes, I said, look, if you are so bitter and so unforgiving towards a person, it probably just means you've never been saved because the general principle is that you'll release people. But is it possible for a Christian to hold on and to linger in unforgiveness? And of course, the answer is yes. Again, it's the fellowship. It's a mark of conversion. On the other hand, you can disobey. You can go all the way through Scripture, and you'll see these balancing truths. Let's go back to the handout. So while forgiveness is a mark of real conversion, it is also a characteristic of the believer in fellowship with God. 
While as a general principle, a believer will forgive others, it is possible for a believer to withhold forgiveness. And so Ephesians 4.32 says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Turn the page. God teaches us in this verse that our forgiveness to one another is to be patterned after the forgiveness that Jesus has shown us. God is commanding us to show the same kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness as he showed him because he knows we can withhold it. So in Ephesians 4.32, it is not that we forgive in order for Jesus to forgive us, but that we are to forgive because he has forgiven us. Two key words in this command are the words, just as. Just as God in Christ Jesus forgave you, right? Just as, because when we think of the amazing way in which Christ has forgiven us, it is dishonorable for us to withhold forgiveness from other people. In a lot of marriage counseling I've done over the decades, it's, it's trying to get people to forgive somebody else for something they've done. And the only way sometimes you can start is for them to recall what God has really forgiven them of. And more and more people, the entry level into the church is a crisis in the home. Why'd you come? Well, our marriage is splitting up. And so you, you, you don't start with these like fresh, strong marriages. You start with a lot of new members who are in crisis. And that's okay because they came to the right place. So you deal with a couple and, oh, my husband cheated on me. And you find the history a little bit. And you discover that she cheated on him five years ago or that they ever before anybody cheated were living together before they got married. I said, do you know what that's called? <laughs> it's adultery. It's fornication. And so did God forgive you of that? You confess Jesus. Did he forgive you? Well, if he forgave you of that, what are you to forgive of other people? So sometimes you got to go back and you look at the just as with people. Ten, two key words, again, are the words just as, because when we think of the amazing way in which Christ has forgiven us, it's dishonorable to withhold it. God in Christ waited for us and wooed us to himself. He took the initiative in forgiveness, even though by nature we were not interested. Over and over again in Scripture, God keeps reaching out to lost sinners for reconciliation, even when lost sinners reject him again and again. That's what we see right after the fall. Where are you, Adam, right? When God forgives us, he does so completely without first setting some kind of probationary period before he forgives, even knowing that the sin he forgives us of may be committed by us again in the same way. Yet it's total, complete, non-probationary forgiveness. If we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And John is going to highlight on this unconditional, non-probationary forgiveness to say, I'm writing these things to you so that you won't sin. If you really get this and let it sink in, it's going to motivate you not as an excuse to sin, but as an excuse, as a polemic, why you should not sin. Before we come to Christ in worship and in prayer, we are exhorted to have our hearts clean. 
and I, I'm saying before we come to Christ in worship and prayer, not in conversion, we are exhorted to have our hearts clean both before God and men. And so Jesus said, therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go first and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and present your offering. We should never think that our worship and service towards the Lord justifies bad relationships with others. And so it is far more important to be reconciled to a brother than to come in worship and in prayer. Now, Paul recognizes point 16 there. He gives a similar command in Romans 12, 18. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Why does he say if possible? Because it's not always possible. Sometimes you can go in brokenness and humility and ask someone to forgive you, and they won't forgive you. And at that point, it's their issue, and it's no longer yours. But if we come to church, and especially when we come to the Lord's table, we're inviting God's discipline. We're drinking condemnation onto ourselves, not damnation as the old English rendered it, it which had a different rendering in the 17th century English. But we're inviting the discipline of God when, when we're at odds with people, and especially when we come to the Lord's table, which is a, a symbol and a reminder of what he did for us and what he provided. When we come to church on Sunday, we need to make sure our hearts are right with each other. One couple said to me, we just had a big fight in the car. He told me right out in the hallway. I said, why don't you go back out in the car and get it right and then come in. I said, this service will be a lot better for you. So we, we want to make sure we're walking with the Lord. So who, why are we to pray? God gives us many motivations for prayer. And when we understand through the renewing of our minds, a fervency begins to develop in our hearts to pray. We should pray because God is glorified through prayer. I'm going to give you some reasons. We should pray first because God is glorified through prayer. The Lord Jesus explained to the disciples in the upper room as to how God is glorified in prayer when he said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. The older New American Standard uh, said, by this is my Father glorified. And in the new New American Standard, they said, my father is glorified by this. But the meaning is the same. So Jesus makes a marvelous promise and an astonishing pledge, but very often the conditions are not met, for he makes plain that the key to getting what we want is wanting what he wants. And the key to wanting what he wants is letting his word abide in us. Then we can ask in faith whatever we want and trust God to answer. And it will be answered for the simple reason that our wants will not be out of harmony with his wants. And Jesus tells us that the Father is glorified by this. That is by our abiding in the Lord, because while coming to him with an abiding life, we are able to see answered prayer producing fruit that brings glory to God. Think your way through this. This is a really a great promise. If we abide in him and his word abides in us. So there is an assumption that you don't have a casual relationship to the word of God. And I'm always amazed by the first century Jewish people 
who were believers in Jesus as Lord, like Mary and the Magnificat. You know, these people say she was 12 or 13. That's just stupid. I mean, that's not even close to being right. (laughs) She was probably 17 to 20 years of age. But there, I don't, I don't know many 17-year-olds who had the kind of knowledge of Scripture that that woman had. I mean, she just ties together all these great passages and promises on the work of God through Israel and as their covenant people and what he's going to do. His word was such a part of her life. And so if we just have, you know, again, our daily bread, it's sweet and, you know, but... That's not the kind of thing that's going to get you into God's Word. Oh, they got a little verse here, and then they give this little devotional thought. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about digging into the Scripture, pouring over it and learning it and getting it deep into our heart and being willing to obey it, to abide in it. So the promise is my heart's clean. I'm abiding in Him. His Word is working in conjunction with that obedience then I can ask whatever I wish, and he's going to be, he's going to answer it. And my father is glorified by this. He's glorified by answered prayer because it's the fruit of an obedient life. We saw it even last week as we studied Esther, and we saw the, the Gentiles who became Jews, not in an ethnic sense, obviously, but in a religious sense. Why? Because they saw God answer the prayer of his covenant people, and they recognized there is a God who is alive, and that's the one true God that we should be worshiping. And people, both Christians and unbelievers alike, should see prayer answered in our life. And God is glorified by that. A failure to see one's prayer answered means something is not right in the believer's life. Namely, that is, he is not truly abiding in Christ and in his word. And so his prayers are improper and left unanswered. The purpose of bearing fruit is not to bring glory to us, but to God. And when we show God working in and through us by answered prayer, an unbelieving world will see God at work. And by this, God is glorified. We should pray because God commands us to pray. Jesus admonished and commanded us to pray. Turn to Luke 18, Matthew, Mark, Luke. It's the third book in the New Testament if you are listening and you are new to the Bible. Luke chapter 18. It opens up by saying he was telling them a parable to show them at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. Now, I note here on your handout number two, some place the emphasis of this parable's teaching saying, if we do not pray, we will lose heart or become discouraged, so discouraged that we will quit. But if we read the entire parable carefully, Jesus is not speaking about our praying at all times, and in the process, we will not lose heart. Let me read that again. If we read the entire parable carefully, Jesus is speaking about our praying at all times, and in the process, we are not to lose heart. See the difference? He's saying, I want you to pray all the time. And as you pray all the time, I don't want you to lose heart. You could render the Greek, I don't want you to faint. I've never fainted in my life 
except once, and it was a half a faint, and it's because I was losing so much blood. But when you faint, you just kind of, it's over. You know, you're on the floor, you give up. And he uses a word that really is, it's a beautiful picture. Some people say, oh, I just, I'm done, I quit. And so he tells this parable. And he tells a parable of a widow. And that's significant because widows were an oppressed people in the first century. Luke, by the way, says more about widows than any of the writers of the New Testament. God had a responsibility uh, that Israel was to carry out in reference to widows. And 1 Timothy 5 also speaks about not every widow, but certain widows that the church should make sure their needs are met and taken care of. Um, with that said, uh, she has a problem. She doesn't have a man to go to the court on her behalf. And women weren't welcome there. And the courts were not like the fine courtrooms that we have in our day. They were more like portable tents that you would move from city to city and they'd set up and, and usually only men could go into the court and, and very often because there were so many cases you had to pay a bribe. And she was poor. So everything was kind of against her. So he says, in a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city, and she, she kept coming to him saying, give me legal protection for my opponent. For a while, he was unwilling. But afterward, he said to himself, even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, um, by her, by continually coming she will wear me out. So here's a woman that, you know, I don't know if she's outside the ten, and there are many historical writers from the first century that describe these portable courtrooms, and they're interesting to read about, but however she did it, she bothered this guy to death. And of course, the parallels are not even close. There are no parallels. There's nothing but contrasts here. She's coming to a judge who's, she's really not welcomed, we're coming not to a judge, we're coming to a father. Before we're saved, God is our judge. When we're born again, he becomes our father. And he's not bothered, he welcomes us, he seeks us. He seeks those who worship him in spirit and truth. We have a great high priest who understands what we're going through and he wants us to come to boldness into his presence. And so the contrast between this judge and our heavenly father are great. And the Lord said, verse 6, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? The point is, of course not. It's a rhetorical question, but he answers it anyway. I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on the earth? It's really a sobering question. When the Son of Man comes, he's speaking about the second coming, will he find faith on the earth? So point two here, just to review it, someplace the emphasis of the parable teaching, saying if we do not pray, we will lose heart or become discouraged such that we'll quit. But if we read the whole parable as we just read it, he's not speaking about praying. He is speaking about praying at all times. And in the process, as we pray in all times, we're, we're not to lose heart. So 
turn the page here. Jesus did not mean that we should always be on our knees and in our prayer closet, or that we should go about with heads bowed and eyes closed, but that we should always be in what is called a spirit of prayer. With the same encouragement and command to pray, the Apostle Paul said, pray without ceasing. Prayer is much more than the words of our lips, but it really represents the cry and the desires and the expectations and the praise that is in our hearts. Look, when you're walking with God, there's just kind of a spirit of all the time where you're just fellowshipping with the Lord and just, I mean, it might just be something so simple. I'd studied for about seven and a half hours and I had to come out and just take a study break, get some fresh air so I could get another three hours in before I came here. And the UPS guy came by and I missed him. And I'll tell you who gave me the idea, Drew (laughs) and his family. You know what they do at Christmas? All these delivery people, they give them little gifts and tracks. And I think, man, that's fantastic. That's another group of people that we could win for Christ. And so I wanted to make sure that Derek, he's my UPS guy, You know, you should know these people's names if they show up at your house, right? These are people for whom Christ died. When you're going through the line at Walmart or at Lowe's, wherever you are, and you see it, you should know the person's name and try to use it. Ed just did a funeral for one of our members. And she used to work in the garden department over not this Walmart, but the Walmart before that Walmart. And my wife and I said, we need to target Penny. I said, you're right. Even if it's not convenient, we're going to go through the garden center because we sensed she was open. And we went through the garden center for a year. And then she came to Christ. And I was able to baptize her. And, of course, she just passed. She had health problems then. She used to smoke two packs of cigarettes a day when I met her. You know, I mean, literally, the old chain smoker, it was killing her. But, you know, it left her with problems you can't always get rid of. But these are people, so, you know, oh, Lord, I missed him. Bring him back. And he came back. And I gave him a box of pecans where the tract, would you like to know God is your friend? I said, it's just a little booklet I wrote explains how to know that you're forgiven and when you die. He said, I'll read it. And he was just delighted I gave him some pecans. See, that, that we're just in this spirit of prayer. I won't go there. I won't be able to get through it. Prayer is much more than the words of our lips, but it really represents the cry, the desires, the expectations, and the praise that is in our hearts. And so if our hearts are continually beat towards God, then we will constantly be in fellowship with God, often without ever saying a word. Luke records that Jesus told us this parable that we might not lose heart because Jesus knew it's easy to lose heart in prayer. We can lose heart because prayer can be hard work that too often we approach flippantly because we're undisciplined. 
Colossians 4 speaks of the necessity and of the labor of prayer. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Then he goes on in verse 12 of that chapter, Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. Paul encouraged the Colossians with Epaphras example because he was always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers. Paul knew that prayer was hard work that required heartfelt labor. It's easy to lose heart because we're in a spiritual battle and so Satan hates prayer because he knows that prayer moves the hand of God. It's easy to lose heart either through our ignorance of what God has revealed as to how he works through prayer or due to our unbelief we are not convinced of the power behind our prayers. Sadly, too often, prayer becomes a last resort instead of our first resource. And so Jesus ends his parable with a sobering question. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? This parable that concludes with this question cannot be divorced from the discussion of Christ's return from heaven that he just finished on. A whole section before it, I remember the chapter and verse divisions are artificial, and while they're helpful in finding your way, they can be distracting. He's just been in this dialogue about his return from heaven. So this question of his finding faith on the earth ties in with what Jesus said in Luke 17, 22 to 37, because the last days will be filled with corruption and spiritual death and unbelief and apostasy. He just likened his returns to the days of Noah, verse 26, and it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. And so he ties it to the days of Noah and then to the days of Lot, verse 28. And it was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. It's the same in a number of ways as underscored in Scripture, not just in the quickness and the unexpectedness, that suddenly destruction comes. When they are crying peace and safety, Paul says, boom, then it happens. But also the atmosphere is parallel. Days of Noah were days of gross impropriety, lawlessness, violence, immorality. The days of Lot were days of gross sexual perversion. And so it happened. He likened his return to the days of Noah and to the days of Lot, such that in Noah's day, only eight people were saved. In Lot's day, only three were saved out of Sodom. Started with four. Of course, she looked back. Where evil and moral corruption are, judgment must follow. That's what he says here. It's a little rather cryptic statement. We could preach a sermon on it, but I won't. Where the body is, there the vultures will be gathered. So where there's evil and moral corruption, judgment must follow, and so believers are not to lose heart, especially as we approach the end of the age that will be characterized by lawlessness and unbelief. 
Passages like 1 Timothy 4, 2 Timothy 3 paint a dark picture of the last days. And so it is essential that we pray and not lose heart. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith? It's a penetrating question. Because the wickedness and the appetites of the world are going to cause the hearts of many to grow cold and indifferent. And they will lose heart. And they will not pray. Pastor Ed, come and open us in prayer. And then those of you who have been asked to pray, when we pray corporately, we should pause and, and just think about what's being said so that if we're able to agree in Jesus' name that we can bring these petitions to our Father. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Father, you recorded this example for us as a reminder that while we have positional righteousness, we are to walk, we are to abide in you, to live righteously with clean hearts that we might come to a throne of grace to find help in time of need. Thank you for the blood of Christ that makes that all possible, that when there's failure and sin, when we confess, you are both faithful and righteous to forgive and to cleanse from all unrighteousness. Lord Jesus, we've brought these prayers to you tonight. We are burdened for our nation there is so much evil that seems to be expanding. And certainly we would love to stay the decay longer. We give you our president that if it's in your will for him to continue, that you would just intervene only as you are able. We pray for these who are sick. We do pray especially for our elder's wife, Teresa that you would provide a way for her to recover from this cancer with a liver transplant. So we commit those needs to you that are great, but you are a great God. Thank you that you are able. I pray for um, my wife's cousin as she fights tonight for her life. And we pray that you would help Karen somehow through the trauma of having lost her foot and so many hands and, I mean, fingers and toes over the years. Somehow she might be able to recover. Father, we pray for this coming Lord's Day, for the people that you surround us with, in our communities, in our neighborhoods, in our places of work, in our places of recreation, that we would care about them as individuals, that we would see them like you see them, as sheep without a shepherd in need of a savior. May we exercise a word of kindness, a word of compassion, and a word of truth. Give us open doors in which to share your Son. And may you be glorified as you answer these prayers. For we ask, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.